Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Another day in paradise. That's all I can say. Man, I am fired up about today's episode. Let's get into why we're here, man. It's Uncensored 1998. Uh, What a heck of a show this is. We're right on the heels of super brawl where you guys finally paid off sting and hulk hogan uh, that super long feud that most people thought would be put to bed at starcade you managed to stress that stretch it out a couple more months you paid it off right there in february and three weeks later it's time for another pay-per-view that tells you a lot about where the wrestling business is when we're doing shows this close together uh this is supposed to be headlined about hulk hogan versus randy savage in a cage match Sting versus Scott Hall for the WCW title, Lex Luger versus Scott Steiner, the giant versus Kevin Nash, Bret Hart versus Kurt Henning, uh, a triangle match for the U S title with DDP, Chris Benoit and Raven and a TV title match with Booker T likely against Eddie Guerrero. This is all reported, uh, early in the month of March in the observer. But when you run through that lineup there, holy shit, dude, that sounds like a WrestleMania level pay-per-view. Interestingly enough, you're going head to head with WrestleMania for those pay-per-view dollars here in March of 1998. Of course, on the other channel, it's going to be the anointing of Stone Cold Steve Austin. He finally becomes the world champion, beating Shawn Michaels that month at the Fleet Center in Boston. Chat me up when you're on the heels of Super Brawl. Do you think you've got to turn the volume up a little bit because you know you're going head to head with WrestleMania? Not really. Um you know, there were certain pay-per-views that were what, what we referred to as tent poles in, in entertainment, I guess. And the uncensored pay-per-view was just not one of them. Meaning we, we didn't we knew we were competing not only with WWF for, you know, prime pay-per-view real estate, because there's only so much of that available. Um, so you're you're competing for that. You're competing against, you know, March Madness, or the, or, or at least leading up to it, or right during the peak of it, you're competing with a lot of things, and you're competing with it. In our case, with you know a, a branded pay-per-view that was relatively new, and wasn't really getting a lot of traction. It was doing okay, and we're glad we were doing it. But when you start doing 12 pay-per-views a month, or excuse me, 12 pay-per-views a year, you've got to kind of realize that you have to pace out your tentpole events that you're really going to build up to be that marquee event and uncensored just wasn't one of them. That's the word, right? A Hogan Savage cage match with that kind of support underneath should by all rights do a huge buy rate. Uh, he also wrote that the Hogan Savage match at this point, quote, is a hotter issue than Hogan sting based on uh, recent television. Obviously in hindsight, we all sort of look back and think, oh man, nothing was bigger than sting Hulk Hogan. Did you think in shifting gears here from Hogan sting to Hogan macho man that was going to level up or is it just 
Hey, this is what everyone's familiar with. And it's a proven draw. What's the mentality in going to Hogan Savage here? I think for me, it, we knew that it was a marquee match. We knew that it was pain, main event worthy. You know, we were hundred percent certain that the chemistry between Hogan and, and Savage was great. Um, there was a lot of great things about that matchup for this particular pay-per-view, but I don't think any, like I, I didn't expect that it was going to be that, you know, overwhelmed, certainly not to be able to compete with sting. It's something that took 15 or 16 months to build or whatever it was. Uh, but no, we, we, we thought we would hold our own because of the high quality of the match. But again, you know, look at, we were up against and, and not only in terms of, you know, pay-per-view card, you know, our, ours versus a WrestleMania, but you know, the TV, uh, leading up to, you know, WrestleMania and leading up to this pay-per-view for us was getting really intense. You know, you mentioned, you know, we, we see the emergence of Stone Cold Steve Austin here, the coronation of him, you know, the weeks and months leading up to that was some really, really strong WWF television. And, and that's when they really started gaining on us. And this was the first time, you know, right about now at this period is the first time I started really getting seriously concerned. You know, I generally am a pretty positive guy and, and I certainly was back then thinking that, you know, we could accomplish anything given the right opportunity. Uh, but even I knew, you know, with everything that was going on in, in WWF at this point, we were we were really, you know, competing for our lives right here. Well, ratings are uh, obviously at the crux of the television and, and what everyone was really focused on during this entire war. So let's dig deep on that. From the March 2nd edition of The Observer, Meltzer would write, the only story for the week was 1030 to 1045 when Nitro jumped from a 4.3 to a 4.7 while raw dropped from a 3.2 to a 2.8 and another jump by nitro to 5.1 while raw dropped again to 2.6. So by comparison, you might wonder, well, what's the WWF showing versus what is WCW showing during those two segments? It was the rock and roll express versus the headbangers on the WWF. Then we got a Pete Rose interview, uh, an Austin video, uh, Mero versus Owen, and then a Sable Luna angle. And on the other channel here for WCW, we got a giant interview and then we got Bret Hart and Ric Flair tagging up against Kurt and Brian Adams. And then we got a continuation of the Flair Hart angle and the NWO sting closing angle. What is though? What do those numbers really mean though? It means 535,000 more people watch WCW. They changed the channel to increase 535,000 up. While the WWF audience decreased 511,000 homes down. So when you hear about a, a real momentum swing like this, is that something that you guys are trying to sort of reverse engineer and figure out, okay, what worked? How do we make that happen again? Or is that something that only happens in dirt sheet land? No, it, 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 no, we were constantly when we would lay out, you know, you'd lay out the creative, you know, what your stories are basically. And then it's a matter of taking those stories on paper and breaking them down into segments and elements of a show and try to do it in a way that it's, you know, the most entertaining possible, obviously. Uh, secondly, you know, you always think about timing. You know, one of the reasons that I always had to cruiserweights at the nine o'clock hour was because I was really trying to hold our audience and I didn't want them jumping over to the WWF at nine o'clock. Um, and by the way, the same methodology is also used against other programming that you may be competing with. We'd, we'd often think about that as well. 
the placing and, and timing and length of television commercials and bumpers and things like that. All of those are the kind of granular, non-sexy, you know, elements that go into creating a format. And to answer your question, yes, we were always, you know, tweaking that formula and trying to figure out how we could improve, improve upon it. And sometimes during the course of our show, we would, you know, we'd show up on Monday morning. We'd have a pretty good idea what we wanted to do by three o'clock in the afternoon. Generally speaking, we'd kind of ironed out a lot of the details and, you know, adjusted to any changes that we had to make. Um, and, you know, we'd, we'd get ready to do the show. But oftentimes during the course of the show, depending on what was going on with the competition, for example, when they went into commercial break, we would sometimes alter the length of a match. Uh, in order to take advantage of that, that was, you know, when when the narrative <clears throat> is out there about how we used to watch w, WWF on the monitors or how I used to, I, I don't know how I would have done that while I was doing, you know, color commentary, by the way, or performing in the ring, but whatever. Um, what I think where that is generated from is because oftentimes in the production truck, we would have the WWF feed so that Craig Leathers, who was our director at the time, could, you know, on the fly. And with minimal notification to the network, uh, make some pretty quick changes that enabled us to, to to improve upon those quarter hours significantly just by capitalizing on the fact that they were in a commercial break where we could extend a match for two minutes or or whatever we had to do, and that was a really you know it was a constant you know tactic I should say. Let's keep it moving here. The uh, March 9th edition of the Wrestling Observer says that. The combined rating for Monday Night Raw and Nitro set an all-time record with Nitro getting its second highest rating in history in a competition situation, and Raw did the same thing. Nitro got a 4.81, Raw got a 3.81. The combined rating for the head-to-head two hours is a record 8.6 or 6,250,000 homes, which is just bananas. Uh, The overrun is incredible too. a combined 9.0 with six and a half million homes, which is a record for Monday night wrestling. You gotta be feeling it here, man. Knowing that, you know, I don't care if they're doing WrestleMania, we got our shit together. Do you know? No, no, that's not true. And you know what? The other thing I'd like to point out is we're breaking down uh, those numbers as big as those numbers, and they, look, they were great numbers, and we were all excited about it. Obviously, everybody was excited about it. I'm sure the WWF was excited about it to a certain degree because they were trending up. But I, I think there's so much duplication in that number. Right. And even though it, those big numbers sound really exciting and you think, wow, that, you know, it's the most amazing time in history, it's 6 million viewers. Now, granted, they're you've got a lot of the, the, the viewers that are dedicated to one show or the, or the other, but I think the vast majority of the wrestling audience really went back and forth consistently through the show. I, you know, and going to these events that I do with you and, and Tony and, and Bruce, um, how many times have we heard people when we're signing autographs say, yeah, you know, I used to flip back and forth all the time. Of course. We, so that, that's, why I say I think that giant number, whatever the 8.1 rating was or whatever it was, uh, probably a, it was probably really about a five rating that just shifted back and forth constantly. I, I think there was so much duplication in that number <clears throat> that it's not really a fair barometer to judge anything else by. March 16th edition of The Observer, the final segment uh, of 
nitro that week that has been covered in the observer is sting and Randy Savage teaming with the giant on the opposite side. It's Scott Hall, Kevin Nash and Hulk Hogan. And that six man draws a 5.7 rating and a 9.2 share for that final quarter hour over 4.1 million homes. And that blisters raw again, WCW got a 5.7 raw gets a 3.3, which is just incredible. Especially when you consider that most people credit Mike Tyson and his presence and influence as being one of the things that really helped shift the momentum. Tyson's all over this show and they get destroyed by nitro. You, you they, got, they, you guys maybe, were rolling. Maybe. And I mean, it's, well, not maybe it, it, they, they did, but it doesn't necessarily mean that <laughs> The investment was being made. They were laying the groundwork. And while Mike Tyson may not have had, every time he showed up, may not have had this dramatic spike in, in the ratings and have this huge impact for WWF, nevertheless, they were laying out a hell of a story. And you can't always, when, you, when you're talking about creative and making a, a tactical move or a strategic move, you can't always expect you're going to have an immediate return on it. And yeah, we beat them and we were beating them, but I guarantee you, I know what I was thinking about this time. And I was getting real sweaty, you know, looking at what they were doing because it wasn't just that Mike Tyson was there. They were changing the way they were doing television. They were changing the way they were presenting their product. They were getting more real. They were doing a lot of the same things that we were doing and they, and go, and they would go on to do them better than we did while we were doing them. But it was the, the creative shift in the slow build that I saw coming that made me the most nervous. And that's why, you know, when I hear these numbers, it wasn't like I was running around going, ah, big deal. They've got my taste and we still beat them. Uh-uh. It was exactly the opposite of that. Well, the uh, hits keep coming, but I'm sure you'll downplay it since you have everything else so far. You guys ran unopposed on the March 16th edition, uh, of nitro. And this is one of those live from club La Vila spring breakout Panama city beach editions. But there's no raw that night. And in the observer from March 23rd, it would be reported that you guys drew a 5.58 rating, which shattered the previous record of 5.10. And if you go ahead and round that up to 5.6, it's tying the very first clash of the champions way back in March of 88 for flair sting. Unbelievable to think about, you know, more than 4 million homes are there. And at the, at the biggest peak of the show, 4.8 million homes are watching nitro. It really just feels like here in March, man, every week, a new record. Um, what's Turner, you know, maybe not the wrestling people, but the television side, what, what are they thinking when they see these ratings come in every week and every week, it's a new record. You know, what's really frustrating about hear, hearing all these numbers and how well we were doing and we were, you know, I'm, I don't mean to downplay that. We were. I just, I just don't want to endorse people looking at some of those big numbers and thinking, you know, there was 20 million people watching wrestling when there really wasn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what was really frustrating and interesting, and in, in fact, in talking to Tony um, Saturday morning, we had breakfast, and we were talking about how Turner, when I had the opportunity to do a live special on NBC in February, just a less than a month before this pay-per-view, I think. Uh, Turner execs told me I couldn't do it. Now, you think about and, and Tony was, Tony, it's like he didn't really know the whole story. 
And it was a perfect example of how getting together with, you know, Bruce or Tony or you or whomever, you can talk about things that occurred from your, from your own unique perspective. And there's stories that I have never heard before. Tony was up on stage talking about things that I had never heard him talk about before and his, his view of it and, and how he experienced it. And the same thing was happening here. Tony never really knew the whole story about why we didn't do the NBC special because it was laid on our lap. We could have easily done it. But it, it, what's so ironic is this would have been the time. And, you know, looking back, and again, it's a hypothetical, so I'm not invested in this, but you think about the possibilities and what could have possibly happened if we would have had that with, with these massive ratings you're talking about. And they were, by inner standard, duplication or not, they were still massive. But if you look at our television momentum, the success we were having, this is really before things started getting more and more difficult as the year 1998 went on. Um, this was the perfect time. Just the moon, the stars, our relationship with NBC, everything was lined up. That special in February would have probably, it would have made a big, big difference to, to, to everybody. And I'm not saying it would have changed the outcome or anything like that, but maybe, <laughs> you know, because something that big, when you have that much momentum, can change your future. But to your question, you know, what were the executives that just denied me an opportunity to do a two-hour special in prime time on, on NBC? What were they thinking? I think they were trying to figure out how to best leverage WCW's success to benefit themselves because that's what executives do and, and, and operating, you know, division operators do. So, yeah, I think people were happy, but not happy enough to let us grow the brand. <laughs> It's so wild to me, you know, I enjoy doing this show with you just for nuggets like that, that maybe we wouldn't uh, hear otherwise. Let's talk a little bit about, um, what's next as far as the business side, you know, we broke down the ratings, but we haven't really broke down the dollars, especially from the live event standpoint, you guys ran a show at the spectrum and sold it out well in advance, 14,254 fans here. This is for a nitro 236,978 bucks, which is incredible. And because of all the interest, you decide to open up the core state center for overflow and sell tickets for 10 bucks, just to let people come in and watch it, which is nitro. They could have just stayed home, but even that drew 1700 fans, but this show at the spectrum on top of the 200 and nearly $37,000 gate draws over $159,000 in merchandise. WCW merch had never really been a thing until the NWO. And now it's hotter than ever. Were you guys trying to beef up your merch and your licensing like real time during this era? Because you've talked about before that that infrastructure didn't really exist. Are you trying to hire an ad to every week just to keep up with the demand? Not every week, but we were definitely growing as quickly as we could, you know, and, and you talk about that. I think in 1998, we sold $8 million worth of merchandise in Japan, NWO merchandise. So, I mean, it was not only huge here, but it was huge internationally. Well, in Japan, I guess it wasn't big in Europe. But yeah, we were constantly adding and looking for third-party suppliers. It's not just the staff that you have to, to hire to manage it internally, but you've got to find vendors and you've got to find reputable ones and, you know, licensing it, you know, that's got a longer, um, gestation period, you know, to, to close a licensing deal usually 
takes a good six or eight months in a best case scenario, just going through the legal portion of it and then going through the creative side of it. And then, the, you know, you've got to, you've got to manufacture whatever it is, whatever it is, is, is being licensed. So there's a lot of things that have to happen, but we were moving as quickly as we could because a lot of these opportunities were just popping up in real time, as you said, and we had to react to them. Couldn't, couldn't let them go. The property is not just hot in Philadelphia on February 27th. They put tickets on sale for an April 13th nitro at the target center in Minneapolis. The governor proclaims it Ric Flair day to try to spearhead ticket sales. Well, it works. It sells out in five hours, 14,667 tickets, 270 grand and change. It's the most impressive first day on sale ever in company history up to that point. And sets a, a darn near record for the area. The only time they had done more, you'd have to go back to 86 for an AWA wrestle rock show that drew 16,000 fans and an estimated 300,000. But obviously you guys are going to crush that in merch. But the hits keep coming, man, because the March 23rd Nitro in Louisville at Freedom Hall is probably more impressive than a sellout in Minneapolis, which has a rich wrestling history, more so than Louisville. But still, you guys sell it out here, unbelievably, four and a half hours later, 13,856 tickets, an unbelievable $238,000 gate. It devastated every pro wrestling record ever in the city of Louisville. Just unbelievable. I mean, these days, with the exception of a double or nothing or an all in wrestling shows don't sell out that fast. And I don't know that we'll see, you know, a regular weekly Monday night show like this sell out this fast ever again. What a time to go back and revisit, right? Well, you know, what happened here though, is at, at this point for WCW, you know, obviously after the NWO turn and you know, with the edgier kind of content that we, we did, um, Nitro became more than just a wrestling show. It, the live event really took on a life of its own. It was really like a party. It, it had that vibe to it. Not, not everybody, obviously, but, and, and part of that was because some of the things that we did that may or may not have seemed subtle or some of the things that we did, um, that wrestling fans may or may not have really enjoyed or liked. Well, when I say wrestling fans, I mean, you know, your hardcore weekly viewers who are really passionate about the in-ring product, but those nitro party stunts that we would pull, they actually, I mean, it's like, it was like a viral video in, in today's vernacular and in, in, in social media, you know, we started doing those. The first couple of them we staged and tried to make them look real and, before we knew it, we had people submitting videos of their nitro parties. And that's when it dawned on me to start getting some of these on tape, you know, that, so we could insert them in the show because the real parties looked really cool. And so we would send crews around the country um, looking for great, you know, nitro parties. And that may have seemed like, you know, wow, that's crazy. It costs too much money and it's not even wrestling. It's not telling the story. But it was those kind of incremental investments in the in the product and in the brand that made nitros feel like a live event you have to go to as opposed to staying home and watching it on tv because the energy was completely different let's uh let's keep it moving here and, and talk a little bit about you know what else is going on in the wrestling world besides just facts and figures 
According to the rumor and innuendo, Benoit, Jericho, and Malenko all just bump into Shawn Michaels, Steve Austin, and Vince McMahon, and a host of others, on March the 3rd at a hotel near the Pittsburgh airport. The WWF had been in Wheeling, West Virginia, and WCW had been in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And so, allegedly, Benoit, Jericho, and Malenko are trying to figure out what their potential may be with the WWF. And Meltzer even writes the situation where Guerrero tried to get a release and supposedly Bischoff got hot and threatened to tie him up legally. If he left has remained a sore point. WCW appears really high on Jericho because how he's gotten his personality over since going heel, but everyone else in the industry has recognized that as well. This is well ahead of Jericho leaving and years ahead of the other guys leaving and jumping ship. When did you hear about this? Hey, we all bumped into Vince meeting. Just now. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't hear about that. I find that very intriguing. I don't know that it's true or not true. And I know, uh, Chris and I are going to probably do a podcast together someday. I'd like to ask him if that was coincidence or not. Huh? Well, there you go. You learn something new every day. Yes, you do. Uh, let's keep it moving here. Um, there was a, uh, a bit of a situation and we've talked about this before with the invasion. Meltzer would write a major mini battle in the midst of the big war is going to take place on April 27th. When the WBF has raw books in Hampton, Virginia at the Coliseum and WCW has nitro booked the same night in the same metropolitan area at the Norfolk scope arena. As anyone who has followed wrestling for any length of time would know, despite frequent protests of both sides, not being concerned, this being the coincidence of booking, this is in fact, no coincidence. It ended up being a game with both companies moving their on-sale dates forward in an attempt to get the jump, a game won by the WWF, which sent the undertaker to Norfolk in advance to put tickets on sale on March 9th. And they did a strong first day four days ahead of WCW's on sale date where they were sending the nitro girls and Harlem heat to the Naval base. Chat me up here. Do you, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I think, I think the nitro girls and Harlem heat to a Naval base, but I mean, all due respect to the undertaker, but come on the nitro girls on a Naval base. That, that was smart thinking. Not arguing <laughs> that at all. I am curious though. When did you know, do you remember this being okay? They want to run the same town. Fuck it. We're not moving. Let's just put it on sale before them. And it being really a race to on sale. Yeah. That had Zane Bresloff written all over it. That was Zane's thing. And he lived for that kind of thing. And we all did. I mean, God bless those times. You know, it was and even in this case, you know, we came out on the short end of the stick, but it's that kind of energy and competition that has nothing to do with anything on television that was one of the reasons the audience was as jacked up about wrestling in general as they were. It wasn't just what we were doing on television. It was what we were doing off of television that just raised that feeling of a real battle and, and made it believable because it was playing out in so many different ways. It was awesome time. I, I miss those days. The March 23rd observer recaps that spring breakout edition of nitro that happened on three sixteen, and Meltzer says, Hall and Nash definitely positioned themselves or were positioned as apart from the rest of the NWO crew, with the exception of one interview where Hogan went out of his way to put Nash over. 
while the rest dressed in NWO attire, they came out in swim trunks, Hawaiian shirts, and flip-flops building up to doing a comedy routine where Nash did a belly flop into the swimming pool to mockingly escape from the giant and the giant to kind of make him look like a fool. And Hall took a press slam into the pool from the giant and to make the mockery of the whole scene even more when Hall and Nash in the interview were running down the giant Hall actually said, Hey giant, that's your cue. I think most people remember this episode just because of Hall and Nash and their hijinks in the pool. What'd you think? I'd loved it. And just hearing you, you know, replay it, you know, digitally, um, it sounds like a blast, you know, and that was the kind of irreverent perspective. Sometimes, you know, especially Hall and Nash, that was part of their character. So it was <clears throat> it really was consistent with the brand for NWL. These guys weren't all alike. It wasn't like we, we took three different characters and, you know, tried to make them all be the same. <clears throat> we wanted to take advantage of their, their personalities. This is Kevin Nash all over this. And I thought it was great, you know, and if somebody would, if somebody wanted to look at that scene and say, oh, he's, they're not getting along. There's some infighting and Holland Nash don't really like Hulk Hogan and this guy doesn't really like that guy. And, you know, they're not really getting along because that was the, you know, that's good. That's a good read, right? You want to put that in your, your newsletter or whatever it is. Um, it wasn't necessarily true, but you could certainly write a good story, you know, if you wanted to about that scene. When you, like I said, when you laid it out to me just now, I remembered it, especially the belly flop. Um, that was some hilarious stuff. And a lot of the stuff WWE, or excuse me, WCW did with, with the NWO was pretty funny stuff that you didn't normally see in wrestling. Keep remember, I keep saying that, you know, and I, I hate to repeat myself, but my goal, you know, for Nitro and in NWO and everything else that we did during this whole head-to-head -head period of time was try to be as different than the status quo as I could possibly be. And this is one pretty good example of it and why I went along with it. I want to talk about some rumor and innuendo here because, uh, Meltzer would write about some stuff you had going on with Mexico in March after a week filled with rumors, some substantiated and others unfounded swirling around both the United States and Mexico truth and fiction seem to have been cleared up, but in the wake of it. Mexico's promo Azteca promotion and the plight of the Mexican wrestlers in WCW appears to be in trouble. And Meltzer would write that WCW and promo Azteca started some negotiations. Sharon Sadello was handling it for WCW as the quote unquote international rep. And she's going to be dealing with promo Azteca and they're trying to figure out how to syndicate the Azteca TV show in the United States on Telemundo. But in the end. Quote, it ended with more interesting correspondence and rumors flying back and forth. Finally, at the end of this week, WCW vice president, Nick Lambros sent Conan a letter stating in no uncertain terms that he, along with every Mexican wrestler in WCW was under exclusive contract to WCW internationally, meaning specifically the Mexican wrestlers can no longer wrestle in Mexico. And Meltzer would continue that WCW was always in fear of Mysterio jr. Getting injured. And they didn't really care what the rest of the Mexican crew did in their country. So long as they didn't appear in the United States, but that's changed here. Why the shift? Well, that was never true. I'm sorry, bro, but that wasn't, no, oh, I said it. That was never true. It's not that statement right there as a part of, 
everything you're about to say, that's a very important statement. What's that suggesting is that up until this moment when Nick Lambros sent that letter, Ray Mysterio was the only one we were worried about, worried about, and we were going to let the other guys do whatever they wanted to do. That is so not true. It's it's hardly worth responding to, but it's a very important fact. Sorry. No, I, I, I mean, chat me up here. What changed? Why? why the... Nothing changed. We never wanted them. That was, you know, one of the reasons the 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 relationship in in with the talent in Mexico, Mexican talent, as well as TVS Tech and AAA and all that. One of the reasons it was so difficult was um, I want to say this carefully because Conan and I are pretty good friends, and I don't, <laughs> I don't want to upset him. But uh, you know, Conan was working both sides against the middle. We never want. First of all, if I would have entered into an agreement, or, or if I didn't care whether they worked in Mexico or not, I wouldn't have written them. They wouldn't have had guaranteed contracts. They would have had. They would have had contracts for a much a much lesser amount of money, and we would have booked them on a daily basis. But that wasn't what we wanted to do from day one. We didn't want any talent that was not exclusive, just like WWE doesn't to this day and never has. So the, the, the whole premise is a false premise, like I said. But, you know, as for why, um, it's obvious why. And the way that – here's an example of how the problem manifests and really made the relationship difficult to manage is because we wouldn't know when talent was – they wouldn't tell us because they knew they weren't supposed to do it, number one. And they wouldn't tell us. And then it's time for us to book them and they're not available or they're late or there's travel issues or there's all kinds of other issues because they're booked somewhere else instead of for us while we're thinking they're exclusively ours. And it was hard enough getting talent, you know, across the border sometimes just because of travel and visas and the whole process of going through all that stuff. Um, but it was further complicated when talent was working for promotions when they shouldn't have been. And yes, injuries were a part of that. Because our, our talent um, oftentimes got paid for a period of time while they were, in, while they were injured. So, yeah, we, we never wanted anybody to go out and wrestle for somebody else, risk getting an injury, working for somebody else while we had to pay for them. It doesn't make any sense on the surface of it. And, and people can, you know, granted there are some people that listen to this and just want to poke, poke holes in things that I say. But there was no talent at any time that was able to go work for other promotions, the Mexicans are otherwise. And we certainly wouldn't have made an exception for them. And to suggest otherwise isn't true. What can you tell us about the discussions to, uh, try to help promo Aztec again on Telemundo? You know, Sharon was handling those. It was really more, it, it really was just more transactional. Meaning if, if we could facilitate it, we'd get a piece of it. And I think there was a big effort on our part. We wanted to build a strong Hispanic audience, and we were looking forward to, you know, working with um, Mexican partners, whether they be TV networks or promotions, um, to try to build up that that part of our roster and that element of our brand. Um, but this was just an example of something that we were exploring and kind of an ongoing thing to help build those relationships. Literally one week later, Meltzer would report. It appears most of the problems have been settled with WCW allowing its wrestlers to work in Mexico and Conan being officially reinstated as the intermediary between WCW and promo Azteca. This feels like, uh, is there something lost in translation here? Some sort of cultural difference. It feels a little hokey pokey ish. It, there was a lot of hokey pokey going on. 
<laughs> and and Conan and Conan was right in the middle of it all. But yeah, there was a lot of it going on. So you just said we didn't allow it, and then the next week Meltzer says you changed your mind. You did allow it. Did were there certain things just discussed, like you can do this but not that, and you laid out some provisions or chat me up on on why this? Was, I, I know you can't say, oh, I can't speak to what Dave Meltzer writes. No, well, and I can't speak to what Nick Ambrose or how we negotiated a contract. I, I wasn't involved in that, and I'm I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I didn't try to pretend one, pretend I was one. But you know, I can't speak to the details of an agreement that happened 20 years ago that I wasn't involved in. Let's talk about something else. We talked about Mexico. Let's switch over to Japan here. Um, Meltzer would write on the March 16th edition of the observer, the exact situation relating to the new Japan WCW deal is subject to an incredible amount of rumors and speculation. What is known is that the two companies had a joint bank account in which each company put up half a million dollars which was used to pay WCW talent and working for new Japan and the new Japan talent while working for WCW new Japan first withdrew its money from the account and WCW followed by withdrawing its money from the account, seemingly putting the partnership in jeopardy. There is a separate deal where new Japan pays WCW a sum, either seven fifty or a million dollars a year to book foreign talent to their company, a deal that was recently renewed through the end of 1998. There are also other deals relating to NWO merchandise and much of the problems may stem from the popularity of the NWO name and moniker, which is owned by WCW, but used for the top heel group in new Japan. Before we get too far in the weeds on NWO merch in Japan, this is the first time I've ever heard of a joint bank account between two promotions. Do you remember hearing that? Or can you tell us what the situation with that was? <laughs> I, it's the first time I've ever heard about it. First of all, WCW didn't have a bank account. All right. Turner Broadcasting did. It's, uh, God, I'm, I'm literally, I'm almost have tears in my eyes. I'm smiling so hard at how ridiculous that was. I've never heard of it before. <laughs> And to think that Turner Broadcasting is going to open a joint bank account with New Japan is just so freaking absurd on the face of it that it's, it's hard for me to respond to it without laughing about that. Um, there you go. I don't know what else to say. Apparently, uh, in this era, some of... Um these disputes about the NWO name and, and who gets what percentage of merchandise sales has Masahiro Chono start to phase down the NWO in favor of a new line, which is being put out by his wife and they start sporting that stuff on TV instead of as much of the old NWO stuff. Um, it even goes so far as to be something for, you know, trading cards, magazines. There's a big debate about who owns the NWO. Obviously WCW does, but how they divvy up the money in Japan. Chat me up. Do you remember this, this sort of fight about, you know, who gets to do what with the NWO brand in Japan? I'm going to lay down some, she is it for you right now. And this is awesome 
this is some inside baseball shit going on here on this very topic, which I just became aware of last month when I was in Japan. So here was, let me first try to do a good job painting the picture of what our deal was with New Japan as it relates to NWO merch, because you have to understand that first. So rather than trying to manage a licensing deal in a foreign country, and in order to manage a licensing deal, you have to have accounting. There has to be, there has to be a process in place. It's very cumbersome. It's not, not impossible, and it's something we were working towards. But again, all of this was happening pretty fast. So some of the things that we did early on that were, especially something like this that was just so outside of the norm, we had to just figure it out and, and make it work. So here's how we made the NWO merch work. And Sonny Ono was right in the middle of this. Also remember the name Masawa Hitori. Okay. Now, what Sonny did, because he, he, he was fluent in Japanese, being a Japanese, and was really working pretty closely with New Japan management at that time, we decided that the best way for us to handle the merch was for us to sell the merch directly and ship it to them with a markup. Very simple. Not complicated. Don't have to do any audits. Don't have to enter into a, a licensing agreement, given that you know Japanese negotiate much differently than Americans, and there's a cultural issue, and there's language issues, and you know the laws in Japan are completely different than what we're used to here in the United States. There's a whole bunch of reasons why we didn't enter into a licensing agreement with New Japan, and we decided we decided to sell direct. So, for example, if the shirts cost us three dollars. $5, whatever the shirt cost us at that time. We would then mark it up, sell it to New Japan based on their orders, and they pay for it. And that way there's no accounting. There's no audits. We know exactly how much stuff we're shipping. You know, They know what they're getting. Um, they didn't want to get into the t-shirt manufacturing business. They just wanted some product. Now, New Japan was selling that some of those products, some of those t-shirts for 35 and 40 bucks. And, they, and that's what I said earlier in this show. It's interesting that we stumbled across the story. But, you know, in 98, about this time, and I just heard this number on my most recent trip to Japan when I was meeting with people who were formerly in the office at New Japan, by the way. Um, they're the ones that shared all this with me. And they were marking it up. And Muda, Chono in particular, nobody was getting a rip on it. The talent wasn't making a dime. New Japan was keeping all the money. Now, what? this is what I just learned, and I don't want to incriminate anybody by name because I don't know for sure if this is 100% true or if I indeed interpreted it as 100% accurately. But my understanding is Mr. Hattori, who I mentioned earlier, previously was negotiating those types of deals. He was based here in, in the U.S., lived in New York City, I believe. And he, before Sonny Ono came along and before I came along in WCW, Hattori would typically be the the deal maker or the liaison, if you will, between New Japan and WCW or anybody else they were doing business with. Well, 
Katori would kind of do the same thing, but he'd pocket some money for himself along the way and spiff some of the talent. So when Sonny, not knowing any of this, <laughs> or I, um, started dealing directly with the office at New Japan and just doing a simple direct sale where we marked it up for our margin, they got it for X, and they could mark it up for their margin. Well, that immediately cut Hattori out of the picture. He was no he was no longer making any money, and I think even more importantly, because I don't think he made that much off of WC. Can't imagine he ever did, other than maybe talent deals. But that cut Hattori completely out of the picture while he's watching New Japan and the talent, by the way, while they're watching New Japan raking in millions and millions of dollars. That's when, and I don't really understand. I'm not going to suggest I did or do. The, the talent relationship with New Japan and how they typically handled, you know, licensing and merchandising. So I'm not going to try to speak to it. But that's when I think Chono and Muda and everybody, but really driven by Chono, decided to try to come up with their own merch because then they could get a rip on it. And Chono was a very smart man, by the way. And his wife was in the, the, the soft goods or clothing apparel business. Um, Chono now owns um, a store on Ginza, which is the most expensive real estate per square foot of anywhere in the world. And Chono now has a clothing store featuring NWO merchandise because he bought the license from, from WWE. So that's, that's how and why I think as people were seeing, and as Dave was reporting and accurately, by the way, um, that there was a transition away from the NWO merch. It's mostly because the talent was really pissed that they weren't getting a cut of it. Now, they thought, of course, <laughs> that, you know, Sonny was pocketing all the money. Sonny didn't pocket any money. You know, the, the checks that New Japan wrote didn't go to Sonny Ono and then come to WCW, Return of Broadcasting. The checks, the invoice went from WCW to New Japan and the check came from New Japan, you know, back to WCW. There was no middleman in the, involved to be able to skim any money. But, you know. It sounds like a great conspiracy story, and it got everybody a little bit wound up, and it did create some pretty significant um, issues with regard to that. But again, it's because of people were being less than 100% um, transparent within their own company is what it boiled down to. I mean, you sure none of that money wound up in this imaginary joint bank account? I'm pretty sure, man. <laughs> so, hey, let me ask maybe, this. Maybe, maybe I was a signer on that account. Maybe I took it. Well, you know, there's all kinds of theories about how you were pocketing money for WCW theme music and all kinds of stuff that we're going to Yeah, we're going to get into that too, bro. I can't wait for that episode. So let's talk about Sonny Ono for a minute. Uh, around this era, you know, they're talking about how things are really fractured between WCW and New Japan and people are not wanting to use each other and yeah, yeah, yeah. Sonny Ono comes up. Meltzer writes, there was always constant heat in Japan on liaison Sonny Ono, whose understanding and background in wrestling was always questioned. Yuji Nagata had been working prelims in WCW and being talked about as winding up back in Japan if the deal falls apart, although he is listed on WCW booking sheets as far out as is currently finalized, which is through May. But without question, things got worse this week. When Giant Baba made public that WCW had offered to send him talent for the May 1st Tokyo Dome show, Baba turned down the offer, but it was the first time it became public in Japan that WCW had supposedly gone behind their business partner, New Japan's back, to make a deal with the competition. Do you remember ever even discussing this, or is this made up horseshit? 
it, it's it's completely fabricated. I mean, honest to God, that's that's like it's just, there's not a syllable. Of, you know, I, I'll give Dave credit when he's partially true or if he's a hundred percent accurate. You know, I'll I'll try to point that out. But when something like this is so ridiculously now, hang on. In fairness, maybe Baba put this out as subterfuge. I mean, yeah, but, but and that's and I wouldn't, I, you know, and if he, if Dave would have said, and oh by the way, this could all be a bunch of horseshit <laughs> and political gamesmanship over in Japan, I would go, yeah, okay, yeah, all right. But he didn't. It's it's being reported as fact. It's not being reported as a possibility. It's being reported as fact. The, the in the underlying fact that I think you know gets me hot more than any of it, because most of it is comical. If you think through it even a little bit, you would laugh at yourself for having the thought. But, you know, when when you say something like, oh, WCW, which in this case was me, by the way, went behind their partner's back to do a deal, that, that's that's a pretty horseshit thing to make up and, and to print. So, yeah, that kind of stuff gets me hot. And, and, and that's an example of why it's so easy to punch my button when it comes to this kind of stuff. Because those kinds of stories, that kind of narrative gets repeated and, and spread around. And it has a overall, it has a tremendous impact on your character and, and how people perceive your character. And, and like I said, if there was a fraction of truth to it, I'd point that out. But this is 100%. I've never had one conversation with Baba. Not one. I've never met the man as many times as I've been to Japan and as, as, as much business as I've done over there over the, over the years, I never met him or a representative from his office. So where something like this would even germinate in someone's head is just mind boggling to me. Either somebody was sitting at home smoking a bowl and said, oh, I'm going to feed this to David, see if he writes it. Or Dave was just making stuff up. It's one or the other. Binary. There's nothing in the middle because there's, there's not a, just not even a, a vowel in any of that that's true. All right, let's keep it rolling here. Uh, let's talk about the actual show we're here to cover. We've, we've done all the background, all the news and notes. We're finally here. It's one of the deepest lineups ever for star power. And it's going to oppose WrestleMania 14. It's uncensored 1998. It went down on March 15th. From Mobile, Alabama at the Civic Center. Who would have ever thought? It sold out 7,474 seats about uh, a week ahead of time. There's a $150,000 gate, another sixty-two grand in merchandise. Man, this is uh, an awfully loaded card to be running in fucking Mobile, Alabama. Why are you in Mobile, Alabama? Is this Gary Jester's fault? What's going on here? No, it wasn't Gary's fault. The The... As I said earlier in this episode, this just we knew that there was a limit to how well we were going to do with this pay-per-view. We had to load it up. We had, you can't go out there and intentionally put on a, you know, a horrible pay-per-view or a mediocre pay-per-view. Not that we didn't put them on and not that we didn't have them, but it certainly wasn't intentional. Um, but you just know going into a March pay-per-view that you're just up against what you're up against. People are going to be more interested in WrestleMania than they are in anything that we do and trying to pretend otherwise was a waste of money. So for us to go to Denver or for us to go to San Francisco or Seattle or Philadelphia, you name it to go to a, a larger market 
particularly you know in a state that's a heavily union state, would have just been that much more expense. And I think on this pay-per-view, we felt like our best bet was to do put on the best possible pay-per-view we could do, but not expend our resources in ways that we couldn't get a return on that investment by trying to go into a bigger market just for the sake of being in a bigger market and 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 trying to make us look like a bigger deal than we were. We knew what basically we projected what this one was going to be able to do and we we budgeted for that. And going to Mobile was as we've talked about in the past. You know, it's a drive for most of the WCW production team, for many of the people that worked freelance and WCW uh, staff as well as talent all lived in the Southeast. So travel was just a lot easier and much less expensive. So for all of those reasons, that's why mobile Alabama. We start with a barn burner, but it only gets two and a half stars, but look at the talent in this man, Booker T retaining his television title, pinning Eddie Guerrero in 11 minutes and eight seconds. Guerrero has his reluctant nephew Chavo jr. Here in tow as a result of a stipulation in a match that took place on thunder three days prior. And, uh, after Eddie loses the match, he argues with Chavo throws him into the guardrail and Meltzer says this post-match stuff is going to get old and hurry two and a half stars, but it is good that you've got, you know, an angle here involving Chavo on TV. One of his first major things like this on television. what did you think of the match watching it back for the first time in a long time this week? Before I get to the match, I'd like to talk about the open of the show just for a second. Sure. You know, if if somebody listening to the show is an aspiring announcer or an active announcer uh, or, or, or producer, for that matter, go back and watch the open of this particular pay-per-view with Bobby and uh, Tanae and Tony. They did such a great job of framing this event and building anticipation for it. And setting the context, you know, and really context in the sense of where the stories are and what the stakes are and what the possibilities could be for this particular evening. It really, that open really, I think, more than anything I've seen going back and watching some of these, and I've seen some good ones, you know, this is a great team of announcers. I think they probably don't get nearly enough credit as a team as they probably should sometimes. But if you go back and listen to Bobby especially, because he, he listens to everything everybody else said, but he puts a great button on the end of it that really drives the stakes, the potential danger, the risks, all of that. And he does it in a very believable way. Now, as far as the match goes, you know, I was a little, I was, eh, I was probably more like Dave about this than anything. And I think even just watching it back, um, I was immediately disappointed within the first two, two minutes. Uh, of watching it back because I don't remember. I didn't remember it. I had to go back and watch it to to remind myself. And I think you know, when it came up, I thought, oh, this is going to be a great match, another great Eddie Guerrero match. And it, it's not that it was a bad match by any stretch of the imagination. The match was a solid match, technically speaking. And there's a couple of little flaws in it, but not many. Um, but I think th- it was a real slow match for Eddie. You know, my, my expectation as a fan and as a producer, my expectation whenever you see Eddie, especially coming out in the beginning of a pay-per-view, typically what we try to do is start off real hot, you know, and really capture the audience's imagination and, and satisfy them. You know, my, my theory on that was if you start hot, you can find a way to get hot in the middle and you end on a note that you know will have people talking. Overall, people are going to enjoy that pay-per-view. 
and this match, as good as it was, in so many different ways, I love the psychology in the match. I really do. I love the storytelling in the match. But because for Eddie, the pace of this match was so much slower than what I expected to see, it kind of left me feeling just a little bit flat and disappointed. That's that's my take. Next up, a couple of luchadors. Juventud Guerrero gets a win over Conan in 10 minutes and 21 seconds. Meltzer gave it two and a half stars. And uh, Conan does the 187 which is a fisherman suplex drops into a DDT for a near fall. Then he delivers a Samoan drop for another near fall, but then quote unquote, got careless and Hooventude crucifixed him for the pin. And of course, after the match, Conan got his heat back, uses the one eight seven again, throws him out of the ring. Um, I really enjoy Hooventude, but, um, Meltzer says, in 1998, Guerrero is exposed not only for his lack of size in comparison, but also not even being competitive against a lower level, small heavyweight and his wins mean nothing because nobody takes it seriously. And Conan gains nothing because he lost to a guy who was already exposed on TV as his moves, meaning nothing against a real wrestler wrestler, as opposed to a lowly jobbing luchador. Dave's really negative about the positioning of these two guys, uh, especially the finish being, you know, a sort of positioned as a fluke. I, I'm a fan of almost everything Hooventude ever did, but I'm just a super fan like that. What'd you think watching this one back for the first time in a long time? You know, I think that kind of, um, narrative is, is probably more, you know, coming from the perspective of somebody who thinks they really know how to book and, and produce television and produce pay-per-views, even though he's never done it, but he, he feels convinced that, that he, he's, he's, he's so good at it that, he feels the need to share that, that observation, which is fine. You know, not, not angry about that. Um, uh, it's just his opinion and obviously he's welcome to it. Um, I, for one really enjoyed this. I had a blast watching this like you, when I saw who coming out, I immediately started smiling cause I knew it was going to be fun to watch. I really liked his character. Um, I thought if you go to the 22 minute, 34 second mark, approximately, Look at a really creative way that Conan and Hoovy use the steps in this match. Something that, while I'm sure it's been done before and some walking, talking encyclopedia of wrestling history could probably school me on that. But it was fresh feeling to me. I really liked the way they used it. And it actually had a story. You know, you're using a foreign object, in this case stairs, in a way that actually has a really clear, understandable, and exciting story. So I really dug that. Um... I love the comeback that Hoovy made going into the win. Again, my opinion, Dave's opinion, your opinion, we all have opinions, doesn't really matter much. Go back and watch this pay-per-view and and look at that 30-minute mark and tell me if you think the audience just thought it was so-so. They got a, got a huge pop. And the thing that I liked about this match the most, and again, I'm going to go back to commentary here again, is notice that as soon as Hoovy's introduced, relatively soon in that process, they mention that never surrender on his tights. You know, that was a that was a gimmick that, that, that Hoovy was trying to get over. That even though he was undersized, you know, even though you know he didn't win a lot, he was never going to quit. That's a kind of an aspire aspirational thing, you know, kind of gets people over in a way, and. Not only did Hoovy wrestle a match that was consistent with the character that we were creating for him and he was creating for himself, 
Um, but the announced team did a great job keeping that part of the story alive and keeping that brand, if you will, alive. And the finish represented that. Just when you, you know, same thing with the, the, the use of the steps. Just when you think Hoovy's just going to go down, he keeps fighting. I, there was a lot of things I really liked about this match. We're one month removed and we'll talk about it another time, but we're one month removed from Hoovy being unmasked at super brawl, you know, watching this match one month later, obviously you probably watched the show in a vacuum. What'd you think of Hoovy without the mask? Did it take away from it. your enjoyment at all? I, it's sure I, I did. Cause you could see his face, you know, you could see his expressions. You could, you could see when he's selling, you could see when he's happy, you can see when he's angry. Um, I, look, we've talked about this a little bit before. I'm sure one of these episodes, we're going to dig deeply into it. You know, I'm certainly, I was aware of the history and the legacy of the mask. It's not that I completely devalued them, but at the same time, I was trying to create a, a, a show for featuring luchadors, but appealing to an American audience. And I felt like Hoovy was such a good looking guy, not to go Tony Schiavone on you, but such a good looking guy and so expressive and so young that I thought we could get his character over more effectively without the mask than with it. And looking at this, looking at this match, I, I believe I was right. What did you think about the, uh, the JJ Dillon interview next? We get a little segment here where he's trying to explain some of the convolutedness of the uh, power bomb angle here, the power bomb has been ruled illegal, but they've made it legal for this show for the giant and Nash match. And the reason of course, is giant asked for it to be legal and Nash agreed. So, so much for a commission. And of course, as it turns out, the power bomb was not used in the show. Is this as silly in hindsight as it reads? Um, look, I, I, I have two points of view on this. One is, and when I first saw it, I went, oh my God, are you kidding me? We brought JJ Dillon out here on a show called uncensored where there's supposed to be no rules, you know, off the, completely off the grid, so to speak. Uh, and then we bring out a guy to explain the rules. I, you know, I was, I almost got up out of my chair to start to kick my own ass even 20 some odd years later. But as the interview went on, I, I kind of understood why I did it and it doesn't help it much. But if you look at what we were trying to create, first of all, you got two big guys in giant and Nash, nobody expected a barn burner here, right? It was just, you're going to get two big guys having a big man match. And we wanted to add something to it. We wanted to make it feel dangerous. We wanted to make it stand out in some way, shape, or form and create stakes in a way. And I say that hesitantly because it's not really stakes in a traditional form, but there is an element of danger in this match that heretofore wasn't there that potentially made this more interesting to watch. To that extent, JJ did a fine job from a performance point of view. There was nothing wrong with the way he did it but it was the fact that we were doing it that was marginal and probably didn't come off that well, especially given the finish of the match. Obviously that's a real, that's a real, real bad mistake. Um, but I, I didn't hate it because I understood why. And sometimes that's why I'm at a disadvantage because fans just watch it and go, Oh, I like it or I don't. 
and they don't have to ask themselves why. I'm after 30 some odd years of this, I always ask myself why. And when I saw that, I went, why would I? Okay, that's why I did that. So mixed, I have mixed feelings about it. Next up, a really fun match and a great segment after that I've always wanted to ask you about. Chris Jericho retains the cruiserweight title, beating Dean Malenko in 14 minutes and 42 seconds. Meltzer would call it a very good match. The lion tamer is telling the story. Malenko is crawling for the ropes just before he could touch the ropes. Jericho drags him to the middle of the ring and Malenko winds up tapping out a great finish to the match. Meltzer gave it three and a half stars, but afterwards. Mean Gene comes to the ring and sort of blows off Jericho and then really starts browbeating Malenko saying he'd lost on four pay-per-views in a row that he's a loser and he's supposed to win this match, but he blew it again. Meltzer would write. It looked more like Okerlund turning heel while the normally expressionless Malenko acted like he was about to cry. Malenko never said a word while Okerlund was ripping on him until he finally said he was going home and walked out. What'd you think of the match? And what do you think of Gene being a dick afterwards? What was the plan here? <laughs> well, let me touch on a match first. I love the match, and I don't know. You know, Chris Jericho has had so many great matches over his career. He's changed his character successfully so many different times. He, he really is kind of a renaissance man when it comes to that. And I'm not taking anything away from any of the other stuff he's ever done. But I think this era, this point in in Chris Jericho's career is where he did some of his best work all around and he's done got a great body of great work but i really liked what i saw here because he and part of it is because as we all were watching chris is really coming into his own here he's just getting into the zone he's feeling his character he understands his character he understands how to get the reaction and create the emotion that he, he needs and wants to get using that character so seeing it all come together and, you know, I think physically he was probably in some of the best shape, you know, during his career here in, in some ways, I really, really liked it. I'll, I'm going to say this again. I'll probably say this every time his name comes up. Every time I watch Dean Malenko, I, to this day, I still become a bigger fan. His walkout alone makes me respect the hell out of him because it's so believable and he's so consistent and you could say, yeah, but he's, you know, playing the Iceman. It's not that hard. It is that hard. It's, it's hard to make it, to do it and make it believable. And Dean makes it so believable. And then when he steps in the ring and the bell rings, it's just some of the best stuff. And this match was no exception. Um, as far as the, the interview again, I understand why, but God, I wish I could go one, because I wish I could go back and work with Gene one more time. And two, I wish I could do this one over again, knowing what we were trying to achieve here with Dean and where we wanted his story to go. And, and you know, that picture is pretty obvious, I think, to everybody. But essentially, we wanted to paint him into a, a, a corner, if you will, creatively, where he was really beginning to doubt himself. And as much as the industry meant to him because of his father and, you know, growing up the way he did, he was you know, at that point where he felt like there was no longer a place for him and we were going to go from there. So I understand why we did this, but boy, it was executed in my opinion, so horribly, you know, Gene pressuring him so hard was the wrong way to go. I'm sure the people watched like me, I was waiting for, for, cause I didn't remember how it all ended until I, you know, got into it, but I'm waiting for 
for Dino Colcock Gino. Now, I knew it wasn't going to happen because Gino was never going to take a bump, but it was like, okay, well, he, he's going to explode here at some point. And then when he just walked away, oh, that's what we were trying to do. But man, Gene going as hard as he did for as long as he did just didn't work for me. Blowing off Jericho just didn't work for me because that's not what Gene would normally do in that situation. Um, so it was so Gene's part was so over the top in its execution, not Gene's fault. He was doing what he was told to do, but looking back at it now, even in the context of what we were hoping to accomplish with Dean and the story we wanted to tell, it was horribly executed. Let's talk about something you didn't love. I got a dud rating in the observer. Lex Luger pinned Scott Steiner in three minutes and 53 seconds. Meltzer said this made no sense. Steiner had just turned heel and threatened to get hot and had the ability to step up in rank. And instead they cut his legs off in his first major singles match. Actually come to think of it. It makes perfect sense. Just a nothing match. Luger suplexed Steiner out of the ring and back in the ring. He used a reverse atomic drop that Steiner sold, even though Luger always misses the move by a foot. He signaled for the rack, but Steiner used a low blow. Steiner went for the recliner, but Luger got under the ring. Scott grabbed a chair, but Rick Steiner came out. And as they argued, Luger gave him the forearm from behind for the pin. And then Scott Norton jumped Rick Steiner while Scott jumped Luger after the match. And it wound up with the faces reversing. Scott charging after Rick with a chair, but Rick back dropping Scott out of the ring and both Scott's left. Whew. Dave was not kind to this. Gave it a dud. Uh, what'd you think? Kind of agree. There was just nothing there. There was, you know, it, I remember my thought, you know, watching this back was, wow, this is just a transitional match. This is just a way to get from one point to another point with some action in between. There was really no good story there. It, it really had no impact on anything we were doing. It didn't move anything forward. The match was the match. You know, it, it, it just, it was not an unusual, you know, good or bad match for these two. And given that it had no really decent story going into it, the finish was kind of eh. And yeah, I'd have to agree with Dave on this one. Let's get to the next match here. This is a fun match. I had fun with this one. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page wins a three-way match to retain the United States title over Chris Benoit and Raven. They go 17 minutes and nine seconds. Meltzer gave it three and three-quarter stars. I kind of dug it. I know you hate this because there's weapons, uh, but I, I felt like this was really, really good use of DDP and Raven. And Chris Benoit really surprised me in this. This is probably not the type of match you would think of with Chris Benoit, but I thought he added something different to this. And of course you guys did some silliness here, you know, the actual kitchen sink and, uh, you, you ripped off the old, uh, ECW angle of, uh, using a stop sign sandwich between an actual like sign you would take to a wrestling show. DDP gets cut going through, uh, some glass here. It was, a, it's a brawl. It's a spot fest, but I thought it was fun. And the diamond cutter. Hey, it works. Benoit, uh, shook Paige's hand after the match. I dug it, but I know you hate this shit. what do you think of this one? I didn't hate this one. I, I was actually, when I, when, <laughs> when I heard it, you know, announced, I knew I was going to be reviewing it. I was going to, oh, I got to sit through another one of those, but I think, you know, Raven Benoit DDP did a phenomenal job laying this out because it told a great story. The only 
The only thing I saw in this match that kind of made me go, eh, was when they did the three-way lockup. You know, it was like, come on. <laughs> this is, come on. I get it. Never been done before, probably, but eh, it looks silly to me. But from that point on, this match made so much sense. You know, it, it, they really took their time, even though they used weapons and there was a little bit of comedy and ha-ha in there. Um, it, it felt... They didn't overuse those elements. They didn't overuse the gimmicks. The, the, the gimmicks didn't outshine the story, let's put it that way, or get more exposure than the story. They used the, they used the objects and used all that to help make the story better uh, as opposed to vice versa. I love the finish. You know, um, Raven and DDP had a great relationship, you know, in and out of the ring. You know, Raven, when he's on, um, and the chemistry's right. He's feeling good about what he was doing and who he's doing it with. Had a pretty good mind for laying this kind of stuff out. So did DDP. Um, so I think they did a great job. I was pleasantly surprised at this when it was over. Really fun match. Go out of your way to watch it. The next one, maybe not so much. It got half a star. The Giant beats Kevin Nash by DQ in six minutes and 36 seconds. Meltzer would say the finish saw giant go for a power bomb, but Brian Adams came out and hit him with a black baseball bat for the DQ Conan and Vincent did a run in naturally. The giant came back on him and choke slammed them both and then broke the gimmick bat on his knee. As he set up Adams for the choke slam, Nash hit him with another gimmick bat that broke giant barely sold the move, which caused the entire NWO to scatter. Uh, talk to me about the bats Were these bats made by Andre Freitas in uh, Marietta, Georgia. <laughs> Yeah, but quite possibly, yeah. Yeah, we we wanted to use a real bat and try to break them on each other, but eh, we had some people in risk management, you know, tell us that that was a little bit over the line. So we didn't want to use a real bat. We we thought it would be better to use a prop bat, which is what we use here for storytelling purposes. Um, the best part of this match for me, and this is going to sound twisted, but if you go to one hour thirty nine minutes and sixteen seconds. You'll see, you know, after Giant goes to choke Conan, it didn't look to me like Conan was being much help. <laughs> and Conan is a big boy, or he was back then. He still is. But he had a real low center, center of gravity. So he was, as big as he was, he was heavier than he looked. Um, and he didn't look like he helped too much along the way. And it was just a kind of a botched-looking choke slam that didn't do Giant any good. And just go to that time queue again. It's one hour, 39 minutes, and about 16 seconds. And I'm pretty sure Giant is motherfucking Conan as he's walking away from him for not helping him up with that choke slam. You could see him on camera. He's he's saying something, and I'm sure it wasn't, you know, hey, what are you doing after the show tonight? Next up, we've got Bret Hart working with Kurt Henning. They're going to go 13 minutes and 51 seconds. The match only gets two and a half stars. Got to be a little bit of a disappointment. These guys absolutely, absolutely tore the house down seven years prior at SummerSlam. Uh, that of course was a different time. Lots of injuries later. Here we are. Ultimately, Brett gets the win with the sharpshooter. And after tapping out, Kurt and Rude destroy Hart, including Rude using a Rude Awakening and Henning laying him out with a chair to the head. And nobody makes the save which is kind of weird two and a half stars. what do you think of the match and, uh, your use of Bret Hart, just a handful of months into his run here. I, uh, 
I was disappointed in the match. And probably again, you know, when this, when I knew we were doing this show and I knew I was going to be looking at this match, I was internally kind of excited because I've always been such a huge fan of Kurtz and look, there was nothing wrong with the match. There was nothing, obviously with these two, nothing technically wrong with the match, but it didn't live up to the expectations I had for it. And I'm sure it didn't live up to the expectations that the audience had for it when it actually happened. I feel I just, yeah, I didn't, there's nothing wrong with it. They both worked hard. You know, everybody did what they were supposed to do and they did it well and they worked hard to get each other over. Um, but it just lacked that pop, I guess, or sizzle that I would expect out of a, a Brett and Kurt match. And you're right, you know, seven years, injuries, a whole number of other issues. Um, they pile up on you and you're not going to live up to the expectations that people had or have of you if they're expecting you to do something that you did seven or eight or 10 years ago. So it, it just, it was what it was. Your point about, you know, nobody coming out to make the save is a valid one. It was a mistake. You know, it, it, it was typical sloppiness when it came to finishes. And it wasn't even sloppiness. It was just mediocrity. It was just never enough thought into finishes. And this is a perfect example of that. And by finish, I mean just, you know, it wouldn't even have to, it it could have just simply involved someone or a number of people coming out to try to make it feel like Brett was a part of WCW, as opposed to the guy that just showed up about a month ago. It was, was, yeah, it was weird. But, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot more to say about it. It, it, I always enjoy Kurt. You know, I enjoy watching Brett, Brett work in, when he when he had a match because he just it's the kind of style that I've always enjoyed personally as a fan. But this one just lacked any real sizzle. Rude looked good. Rude looked like an animal in the closing moments of this thing. You know, I wish we would have been able to put him back in the ring again. He would have had a hell of a hell of a run, but um, just wasn't possible. Next up, we've got our world title match. Sting is going to pin Scott Hall in eight minutes and 28 seconds to retain the title. Uh, Meltzer says I had far less heat than you'd expect, but that Hall was working much harder than usual and did a very entertaining job. Uh, Dusty Rhodes is in Hall's corner and he's doing some interfering here, tripping Sting and things like that. And um, it's weird to sort of go back in time now that Dusty Rhodes is really this iconic figure who can do no wrong. Boy, Meltzer was not being very kind to old dust here. He says Rhodes ran in and dropped the blubberonic elbow on sting, but sting kicked out. And after the stinger splash sting decked Rhodes, referee, Mark Curtis took a bump and then Rhodes threw hall of foreign object. He hit sting with it, but sting kicked out of the surefire pin. Hall goes for the edge, but sting gets behind him, drops him with a scorpion death drop. And that's the pin. Star and a half, super, super weird seeing dusty in the NWO. Definitely one of the things in your book of bad ideas, but I enjoyed Scott Hall getting a world title match. We didn't see this a lot. A lot of people argue that he's probably one of the best performers to never have the world title. Your first time watching this in a long time. What'd you think of the match? I thought the match was very good. I enjoyed watching it. Um, it's interesting <laughs> that we're, we're watching Dusty here because uh, over the weekend when you and I were together in Chicago, I had a fan, you know, one of the questions he asked me was, you know, 
all the people you put in the NWO and people that listen to the show understand we were trying to build it and have two different television shows and all that. So he's a very, very knowledgeable fan. Obviously, he listened to the show and when we talked about those kind of things in the past. But he said, even even with that in mind, you know, did it really make any sense to you to have Dusty Rhodes in the NWO? And all I could do is smile and say, at the time, but sometimes you just get shit wrong. And this was wrong. You know, I again, and I don't even want to tell you why I did it, because in retrospect, it was so wrong, it doesn't matter. It was just wrong, regardless of whatever the motivation or, or reason was. But when I go back and look at it, it's just, man, you talk about a square peg in a round hole. You know, as much as I love Dusty's character, always did, always will, um, Sometimes you just got to put your head on straight when you're casting this stuff. It may sound like a movie or a TV show, but, you know, casting is casting, putting people in roles and asking them to, you know, sustain those roles over a given period of time. There should be some thought that goes into that. And this one didn't get enough thought. Speaking of things that didn't get enough thought, our main event, we're finally here. Hulk Hogan goes to a no decision with Randy Savage in 16 minutes and 21 seconds. It's a cage match. And, uh, Meltzer would say this was a different cage than in the Hogan Piper match. And if that match was nicknamed age in the cage, I'd hate to think what this one would have to be called crowd silence for a poor representation of violence, lack of suspense and offense, living proof that Geritol and steroids are a deadly combination. It wasn't as high, but more importantly, the television cameras were outside rather than inside. So we got nothing but shots of foggy guys wrestling badly through the wire. He says, aside from them whipping each other with their belts, this was a totally pathetic match made worse by both guys blading the hell out of themselves in an attempt to get a crowd reaction from the rare blood in WCW. He says Savage gigged himself three times until he was covered in blood, but nobody cared. It's, uh, not their best performance and sort of weird that Ed Leslie shows up to save the day and beats up Mickey J and takes the key and, uh, yeah. What'd you think of the match? It got a negative star and a half in the observer. I didn't think it was nearly as bad as Dave obviously did. Um, I'm not going to just try and suggest that it was a great match, but I think given, given what it was and who it was with and within the, within a cage, I thought it was executed pretty well. Um, I didn't like to finish everybody that's ever listened to the show knows how I feel about Brutus, the barber beefcake and, and, and not on a personal basis, but even professionally having him involved in a match like this was just not a great idea. You know, whatever. Um, but I, God, I didn't think it was as bad as Dave did. You know, but but again, you know, he's he he's burying a guy that was what forty five or forty eight years old at the time in Hulk Hogan. I'm not even sure how how he would have been a year older than I was. So this is ninety eight. Yeah, he would have been you know forty five years old, forty four years old. So it's interesting to hear Dave's perspective perspective on age as it relates to what should and should not be in the ring today compared to what it was here. It's just 
fascinating to me. Yeah, he's he's 44 here, and and as we're talking, Triple H is 49. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, AJ Styles today, which everyone at home is waiting on me to say, is 41, but he's always my go-to. I, I do want to mention. I feel like this gets glossed over because the match is not great, especially when you've had really amazing wrestlers underneath. And, and obviously these guys are more stars and personalities at this point than bell to bell ass kickers, but macho man does a double sledge off the top of the cage, which is really pretty remarkable. Wouldn't you agree? I would. And also look at how hard, and this is one of the reasons why Hogan Savage, you know, for the most part, always worked because the chemistry was so good between those two. They may bitch and moan or may have bitched and moaned and had their, you know, <laughs> their marital problems, so to speak, you know, backstage from time to time. But once they got into the ring together, the chemistry was so good. Their timing. And again, look, it is what it is. It was a Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage match. It was not, you know, two luchadors in a cage. But I thought the, the chemistry was great. Look at how hard Randy's working not only with that spot you just called, but you know, look at the bumps he was taking, trying to make Hogan look as good as he possibly can, which is what you're supposed to do. I thought it was, I thought he did great. I got to tell you, I love Sting coming down from the rafters, making the save, never gets old. Um, let's talk about the blood though. You know, it it is something that we've just recently covered as being something that got a couple of guys fired from WCW and they're doing it here. And obviously the time is different this years later and yada, yada. What was the policy here? Did they run it up the flagpole? Did they do it on their own? How was this an exception? Chat me up. You know, the, from a macro perspective or 33,000 feet, kind of looking down, we had gone through the policy changes as it related to blood. And it was kind of a roller coaster. And, and so was WWE's policy. Uh, by the t- you know by the, by this time we had settled into a screw it. If it happens on pay per view, it's okay. It just sh- shouldn't happen on TV. So there was no issue. There was no exception made for these two guys because it was Hulk Hogan um, or Randy. Um, we had just kind of gotten over the whole being accused of doing something that was so vile and horrible. And then, you know, a month later, watching the WWF do the thing that they were complaining to us about. So it, it just, by this time, that had gotten kind of old. And we are just, like I said, we settled into the policy we had. Stay tuned next week. We're excited to bring you another, and our, our, I guess our final edition of Uncensored that we're going to do here on the show this year. Uncensored 99, which is just bonkers. Do you even remember... What was significant about this show? Because there is a match on here that you just won't fucking believe. I don't tell me, don't tease me like that. It's a barbed wire steel cage. First blood match between Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan for the world title. Sullivan. (laughs) There's a singles match with your favorite Booker T and Scott Steiner, a dog collar match with Perry Saturn and Chris Jericho. A lumberjack match with Benoit Malenko taking on Kurt and Barry Windham. Hack is going to be in there with Bam Bam and Raven. Jerry fucking Flynn is on pay-per-view against Ernest Miller and Sonny Ono. That's real. Kevin Nash works a singles match against Rey Mysterio. Stevie Ray is actually on pay-per-view in a singles match against Vincent. 
And for the Cruiserweight Championship, Billy Kidman and Mikey Whiprick. Oh, what a time to be alive. And this pay-per-view went down in Louisville, Kentucky, March 14th of 1999. And that's what we're going to be covering next week. And we had it on a poll. I can go ahead and tell you what's up in two weeks. Did you see what won the poll this week, Eric? No, I didn't. Spring Stampede 1997. I was really hoping that 99 would win because we would get to cover your great close personal friend, Diamond Dallas Page's world title win, but it didn't win. Instead, we get DDP becoming a made man when he gets a win over Randy Savage with a diamond cutter in the main event of Spring Stampede 97. But the thing that people remember most about this show is a clip that went viral with uh, Harlem Heat doing a promo backstage and, uh, they pretty prominently say that Hulk Hogan, they're coming for you. So yeah, that's what we're doing the next two weeks. Uncensored 1999 and then spring stampede 1997. He is at E Bischoff on Twitter. If you'd like to uh, watch him feud with all the wrestling personalities available. And, uh, I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.